0: Father, we look forward to your coming. We'll see you, we'll know you, we'll be like you. Father, as we open our, open our Bibles today and we study uh, the realities of your return, would you just assist us in our study? Uh, we recognize that all of the details are not here quite as clearly as sometimes we would like, but we recognize we study a perfect word, a word that could not be improved. You've given us everything you want us to know right here in this book, And so, Father, would you just encourage us and strengthen us as we study uh, this great uniting of you, the groom, with your bride, the church, when you come back for your church. Encourage our hearts today through this teaching, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm not exactly sure where the idea started, but a couple of buddies got together. One was a guy named Tim LaHaye. The other was a guy named Jerry Jenkins. They were friends. They came together on an idea and a project. And in 1995, the first book that would turn out to be a sequence and series of 16 books, they came out in 1995 with the first novel in the Left Behind series. How many of you have read the Left Behind series? Hands go up all over the place. I really regret that I did not write this series. Um, Laughter I don't know that it's all 100% biblically accurate. If you don't know anything about the Left Behind series, um, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins uh, came together with a concept. The concept was that there was this airline pilot named Rayford Steele, and he had a daughter named Chloe, and they had a pastor named Bruce Barnes, and then a journalist named Buck Williams. They're the key characters. And what happened was one day um, all Christians on the earth vanished. All around the globe, all Christians vanished. We call that this event the rapture that word 's not in the Bible as we 'll see in a minute, but uh, there was this snatching away of all believers. Well, these four were left behind, and through the study of scripture and through the, th- the study of materials that others had tried to influence them with, they recognized what had happened and that began this great then this story of this time of them accepting Christ and living as Christians and trying to spread the gospel of Christ through a seven-year period that is known as the tribulation period. It's the time that you know of where the Antichrist rules the world and 666 is required to to buy and sell and trade and and one world religion comes together and it's a most remarkable time. Well, by the year 2000, uh, the Left Behind series was catching on like wildfire. In fact, seven of their... Sixteen volumes, seven different times, seven different volumes, seven of their titles reached number one on the New York Times, the USA Today and the Publishers Weekly um, bestsellers list all at the same time. During the peak of the interest in the Left Behind series, they had a website that would answer Bible questions and people could go there and learn more about what the Bible teaches about Uh, End Times Teaching, they were receiving over 60,000 hits a day on their website. And this is the reason why I really wish I had written this series and thought of it. Not that I could. But ultimately, when it was all said and done, by the time their 16th volume came out and sold in 2007, total sales for the series surpassed 65 million copies. Well, whether you've read it or not, The statistics on the Left Behind series certainly show us something that uh, is very evident. And that is that in the church, among God's people, and even in a watching world, this concept of the Lord's return is very interesting to people. People wonder about when is the Lord going to come back? What is it going to be like in the last days? What is the tribulation like? How does all this unfold? What does the Bible really say? If you've been attending here these last few weeks, you know that as we've worked our way through Matthew's gospel, we are in Matthew chapter 24. It will continue in 25. You do not have to turn there this morning. Um, But in Matthew 24 and chapter 25, we are in a section where Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives teaching his disciples in response to their question, and that is, what will it be like at the end of the age, and what will the signs of your coming be? Chapters 24 and 25 are some of the longest uh, straightforward teaching of our Lord uh, anywhere recorded for us. And it is specifically about this end times, last days teaching. I've been saying something as we've gone through this series. I've been reminding you as we've worked our way, just trying to unfold and understand the words of our Lord as he's teaching there in response to these questions about the end of the age and his return. I've been telling you, now remember... That in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, what is being taught is the second coming of Christ, not the rapture of the church. I've also reminded you that in, 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 in connection with that concept is the fact that Matthew 24 and 25 are particularly written to Israel and Jewish people, not so much the church and Christians. It doesn't mean that Jewish people cannot be part of the church but I'm talking about national Israel and God's plan and program for Israel as we come to the last days of the world. I thought it would be valuable for us today to just stop and take time to just understand what is the difference between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. Why is it that we understand Christ to come in the air and take away his bride, the church? Why is it that we understand this to be a separate event from this great, grand second coming of Christ that will be accompanied with cataclysmic events. Our Lord will come out of the sky on a great white horse, a sword out of his mouth. The armies of the earth will be assembled around Israel and around Jerusalem to take them down one last time. And our Lord will come and defeat the armies of the earth and so forth. He will then establish his millennial kingdom, out of which will come the eternal state of the future um, remade heavens and earth. It's an interesting topic. As we've discovered, it's not always easy to know exactly uh, what is being spoken of in these apocalyptic uh, texts. We're doing our best to understand language, to mean what it says. It'll be helpful for you today to Follow along on the notes, I think. I trust you got a set of notes with your bulletin when you came in. So what I want to do, before we even turn in Scripture, is I want to just stop and kind of define the rapture, and in so doing, um, kind of clear up a little bit of confusion. So the first thing we want to look at, number one in our outline, is clearing up confusion. Letter A, the definition of the rapture. The definition of the rapture. What we're talking about when we talk about the rapture of the church is we're talking about a major future event... In which Christ will return in the air to take his bride, the church, back to heaven with him. So this is an event. It's going to take place in the air. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. And it is specifically about Christ and the church. The rapture deals with Christian people. The rapture deals with Christian people. It deals with his church. Now... Right up front, let's note that the word rapture is not in the Bible. You say, well, where do we get that word? Well, let's turn to our main text for today, because the, the teaching that we're going to receive today from God's Word is almost in its entirety in 1 in 1 Thessalonians, excuse me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now we're going to look at a couple other passages, but in 1 Thessalonians 4, we have the clearest teaching about this event of Christ, the groom, coming for his church, the bride. That would be anybody who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior. Anybody who understands that this imputation and reconciliation that takes place at the cross, you're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. So where does the word rapture come from? It's not in the Bible. It's actually derived from a Latin word which means to snatch. To snatch or to seize and carry off. We find the concept in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17. If you'll let your eyes go there, it's right in the middle of our text. We're going to read this in its entirety in just a minute. But in verse 17, notice what it says Paul instructing the Thessalonian believers, then we who are alive, who are left, will be, here it is, will be caught up. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. That idea of being caught up is the idea of this snatching or seizing or carrying away that is represented in the word rapture. So it's, it's not wrong or bad that the word's not in the Bible. The concept is right there, and we, we capture that concept with the one word, the rapture. So when you hear the rapture of the church, you know that we're talking specifically about Christ returning for his bride, the church. All Christians who are on earth at that time. So what's the distinction then, specifically the distinction between the rapture and the second coming of Christ? And we're going to spell that out towards the end of our message even further. But let's make the distinction on a timeline. And if we go up to the screen here, there's one on your notes, there's one on the screen here, I think. Um, and, um, and if you take a look here, let's just kind of look chronologically at, at, the, at a historical timeline. So we see the cross, and we all understand that's what we were celebrating this morning in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We understand our Bibles um, to, to clearly reference a shift or a change in the way we respond to God after Jesus died on the cross, for our salvation, Let me explain it this way. A few minutes ago at communion, I was talking about imputation, a church word that I wanted you to kind of understand and reflect upon this morning, that is a divine exchange. Things are exchanged. It's something that's not yours is given to you, and it's imputed. It's imputed to you, all right? So in the Old Testament, how many of you remember in the Old Testament that there's a lot of blood? There's a lot of animal killing, right? And a lot of that had to do with the fact that God has, a, has laws. He has laws of the universe. He has spiritual laws of the universe. Just like in gravity, something goes up, it has to come down. It's a universal law, physical law of the universe. God has spiritual laws. One of those laws is the wages of sin is death. It's an unchanging law. It's always true law. It will always be true. It will never change. The result of sin is always death. God implemented in his plan of salvation that for sin... The only way sin can be forgiven is through the shedding of blood, or death must be paid. The death penalty must be paid for sin to be satisfied. All right. And so in the Old Testament, the killing of these animals had a lot to do with symbolism of of those spiritual laws in the mind of God. So God taught his children, Israel, that the father of the family, and and when they would gather, and they had feasts throughout the year, and they had a, a calendar that they followed, and there were different occasions where for different kinds of sacrifices, some, the father would come and he would put his hands on the head of a goat, or the priest would do that, representing the people, or, or a calf, or a, a sheep, or a lamb. And what would happen is he would lay his hands on there, and then he would say a prayer, and everybody understood that what was happening was, in a symbolic way before God, the sins of the family were being transferred on the animal, and then Pop would get his killing knife out, and in front of everybody, Brah! Slit the animal's throat, and the blood would shed, and the nice little lamb is now dead. And it died. It died for sin. It died for sin that was imputed upon it. It died for sin that was transferred. How many of you did your sacrifices this past week? I mean, we just don't do that, right? We don't practice that. Why don't we practice that? We don't practice that because of the cross. Because once and for all, the perfect, spotless lamb shed his blood, and that bloodshed was sufficient to appease and to please the demands of a holy and a just God. And so when we want our sin forgiven, we don't go kill an animal, get your jackknife out, pray over your pet cat or dog, and then slit its throat and say, there, see God, I killed something for me. Whatever. No, what do we do? We bow our heads in our hearts and we humble ourselves at the foot of the cross and we acknowledge that the blood of Christ, once shed, was good for us, even for today. And that began a whole new way of thinking, of relating with God. By the way, all Old Testament saints who symbolically transferred their sin on those animals, ultimately that was satisfied in the mind of God, in Christ, at the cross, looking back And it was satisfied our sin looking forward. So we look back to the cross. The Old Testament saints were looking forward to the cross. And the whole Old Testament is a visual of the sacrificial lamb that was fulfilled and satisfied in our sacrificial lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. And so a very cumbersome system becomes a very wonderful opportunity for us by grace through faith to know the forgiveness of sin. And so so it changed, and so that began a time of church planting, the scriptures were written, Jesus went back into heaven, and we have the church age. And that age is called a a mystery. That's a window of time that the prophets of old did not see coming. And another name for the church is the Bride of Christ. God is at work through Christ in His church, and we're the Bride of Christ. It's illustrated in, in, in Ephesians 5, for example, in And actually, the husband and wife relationship there is presented as an illustration of Jesus as the groom and the church as the bride. But then what we see in our Bible is that there's going to be this this event where the groom, Jesus, returns for his bride, the church. We call it the rapture, and we're we're going to look at the scriptures here in just a minute. It appears that that will trigger cataclysmic events. I mean, just imagine what would happen if Christians everywhere just went away. If you Google, uh, if you Google image the rapture, you see all kinds of stuff. And you'll see like a picture of a, of a suit and a tie and a shirt on a, on a park bench and a cup of coffee and a newspaper. And it's all just empty because the guy's gone. He's been raptured. So it's like a bodily resurrection type rapture translation and his clothes evidently are left behind how many Christian airline pilots do you think there are? How many Christian taxi cab drivers? How many Christian police officers? He's racing down the road, sirens blaring, going after the bad guys, and all of a sudden, where's the cargo? And so some people speculate that the rapture is actually going to be the trigger event with the cataclysmic events that would follow, just the chaos that would follow by removing all Christians. By the way, it's another topic, but More than you realize, as believers in Christ and as the church, you walk in step with the Holy Spirit as a great restraint on sin in this world. Imagine what will happen to this world if the church is gone. Imagine how it will implode in its sin. Imagine how much the church holds back sinful behavior. And so, we would say, and we hold to a pre-tribulational Model of the rapture, okay? So the Bible just doesn't say when this is going to happen. The Bible just doesn't say when it's going to happen. But it appears that it would happen before the tribulation. There's evidences that point to the fact that we will be removed from this time of wrath and the tribulation will begin when the rapture happens. That essentially will trigger the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, this gap in time by the church age, and then the 70th final seven-year window, which we know as the tribulation, the last half of which is the great tribulation, and we will see that that unfolds, after which those seven years will be concluded by our Lord, Revelation chapter 19, coming out of the sky on a great white horse, with a sword in his mouth, and he'll slay the wicked of the world. And he will implement his millennial kingdom following that. all right. So that is the distinction between the rapture and the second coming. The rapture is all about the church. The second coming is all about the judgment of the world. The end. So where do we get this teaching? How do we? Whoever came up with this? Did somebody just make it up one day? Not at all. Now let's look. turn our attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. There are really essentially three places in the New Testament that it appears that the rapture is being talked about. One is John chapter 14 verses 1 through 3. You know that passage pretty well. It's where Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. This is the part we really like. In my Father's house are many mansions. We love the old King James translation. Many mansions. I ain't got one down here, but I'm going to get one up there. Okay? It really means abodes or dwelling places, like a big, huge townhouse concept, or you have a room prepared for you within the rooms. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus, I'm telling you the truth. And I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What's he talking about? He's talking about coming back for his church, I believe. And it's words of comfort. Rapture scriptures are always words of comfort. You'll see that in just a moment. Then the First Thessalonians 4 passage, and then the 1 Corinthians 15 passage. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Okay, and we're going to read that later on in our message. Let's turn our attention now fully to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you have your notes nearby, I think it will help you to track along. Let's begin with verse 13 and let's just read through verse 18 as our text this morning. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Thessalonian believers. In fact, before I read, one more thing. Sorry. What we're going to read is the answer to a question. We don't have the question, but we have the answer. So Paul has ministered to Thessalonian believers. They have accepted Christ as their Savior. One of the things that they've been taught, they have been taught that Christ is going to return. In fact, that is a common teaching throughout the New Testament. And even from the earliest days of the early church in Acts and throughout the epistles, they longed for the coming of the Lord and they expected the coming of the Lord. And that is called an imminent return. One of the distinctives and one of the reasons why I think the rapture is differentiated from the second coming is that the rapture is an event that holds a sense of imminency. That is, it could happen at any time. We don't know when. It might not happen right away, but it might. And it could. The second coming we're going to see as we conclude the sermon in our comparative list is always forewarned with specific events. These things will happen and then the coming of Christ will happen. And so even in the early church, they were waiting for the coming of the Lord, and the Thessalonian believers believed that. The church at Thessalonica believed that Christ was going to come back. And then guess what happened? Somebody in the church died, and they had a funeral. And then somebody else died, and they had a funeral. And they were believers in Christ who longed for the coming of the Lord, and now they're buried out back of the church in the cemetery. (coughs) And so the church began to start getting worried about something. They began to get really bothered about the fact that these dear brothers and sisters in Christ who longed for the coming of the Lord, died before Christ came. A, have we missed the coming of the Lord? Have we missed something? Or what's going to happen to these dead people who are buried in the ground when the Lord returns? They're going to miss His coming. What's going to happen? And Paul is answering that question. What happens to believers in Christ who die and are buried in the ground when the Lord comes back? And in so doing, he teaches us about this reunion between Christ and His church. Okay? Now let's read it. Beginning with verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, he's writing to believers, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Interesting, isn't it? Well, the first thing we want to see under Roman numeral 2 in our outline on this catching up of the Christians is letter A that the Apostle Paul wants us to know about it. It's knowable. Look what he says. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. In your King James Bibles, it used to say, we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. And now that's kind of a slang word, right? For don't be ignorant. That means stupid behavior. Say stupid thing. Don't be ignorant. The idea is uneducated, unknown. We don't want this to be unknown to you. We do not want you to be uninformed about this. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. And so it's a noble event. And so we recognize that Paul is teaching for clarity. He's teaching for clarity, number one. But we do not want you uninformed about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Secondly, he's teaching for comfort. So he's trying to clarify their their doctrinal question, and he's wanting to bring comfort to the church. Now notice, let's define the word asleep here. Notice that several times in referencing these believers who had passed away, it is said that they went asleep. In the New Testament, it's a euphemism for death for believers in Christ. You can read about that in John chapter 11, where our Lord specifically said that about his friend Lazarus. And so it is used uh, um, almost affectionately, almost kindly, and it it makes sense. I mean, my mom died in my sister's home after a long illness. My mom was a dear Christian lady. And back in the bedroom, she breathed her last. Now, the New Testament clearly teaches us to be Absent from the bodies to be present from the Lord. We're going to see that in a minute, that the soul and the body separate at death. The spirit and soul don't go to sleep. The body is done. It's just an empty shell that is done and dead. And that our soul and spirit go to heaven to be with the Lord. Now, when we gathered around my mom's bed, and when when they brought her to Michigan, and we gathered in Michigan there at the family cemetery area, We had grief in our hearts. We'll see that. It's not that we don't grieve, but we didn't grieve without hope. What what happens to people who go to sleep? People who go to sleep wake up. So if you would look down the hall straight into the door of my sister's bedroom where she had my mom in a bed and you would see her empty shell. We were sad, but mom had lived almost all of her 80 years but she was asleep. We grieve, but what a comforting thing. And Paul talks about that. We're going to see mom again. She's going to wake up. What a good thing this is. And so we don't grieve as those who have no hope, he says at the end of verse 13. And Paul is teaching for comfort. I've done many funerals. I'm getting near 100 funerals. And I have seen at different times in the cemetery where people grieve without hope. We've referenced this before. You've seen them. They'll sometimes lay across the casket at the cemetery. And they'll just lay there and they'll just wail. And they cry and they'll shake. Finally, when it's time to go, family members will come and get them and and pull on them and they'll fight them and they'll pull and they're wailing and sometimes they have to get one on each arm and they have to walk them away and their legs can hardly hold them up and their grief is so deep. We stood at my mom's grave in Michigan. We had tears, but we even laughed a couple times as we remembered and we had great hope as we turned away. We didn't lay across the casket longing to see her face one more time. We looked forward to the day when we would see her again. The Apostle Paul is teaching for comfort. Secondly, I want you to see that the Apostle Paul says that this is a reliable word. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. He wants you to be informed. It's knowable. You need to know about this. It's for clarity and for comfort. Number four, letter, Verse 14 For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Do you notice how the Apostle Paul is using the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the foundation of this teaching? So we believe and we know that Jesus died and rose again. In the same way, we will rise again. And there will be another resurrection. And so the idea here, this is a reliable teaching, number one, because it's based upon the resurrection of Christ. What is more foundational to our faith than the resurrection of Jesus Christ? In a lot of ways, you could argue that in the same way that we believe 100% in the resurrection, we we believe 100% in this rapture concept. It's right there. He said, this is what's happening. And just like the resurrection, this is going to happen And so it's reliable because it's based upon, number one, the resurrection. Number two, because it's from the very teaching of Christ. Look what he says in verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and remain and left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We know this from teaching from our Lord. Well, where in the Gospels did our Lord teach the rapture? It's, it's basically not there. The closest thing to it would be John 14, 1 through 3. But think about the Apostle Paul. How was he credentialed? If you would go back into 2 Corinthians, uh, later in the book, around chapter 10, one of the things that he has to do, he even says, I'm making a fool out of myself here, is he's credentialing himself with the Corinthians who were accusing him of not being a real, a genuine, authentic Apostle. And he says, I am an apostle because, see, to be an apostle, you had to see Christ. You had to be an eyewitness. There's no such thing as apostles nowadays. Don't let anybody tell you there is. Apostles see Christ in in visual form and witnessed his workings. But the apostle Paul himself admitted that, didn't he? When he was saved on the road to Damascus and afterwards, he was caught up into the heavens, into the third heaven. He called himself a man born out of time. And he had great visions, and that's what he was arguing and calling himself a fool about in 2 Corinthians, that I'm making a fool out of myself. He was reminding them, I have great visions. In fact, he even went on to say that the reason the Lord gave me a thorn in the flesh is to keep me humble because of all these incredible visions that I've had, where he had face-to-face encounters with the resurrected Christ. We don't know anything about it, but it happened. And so Paul saw Christ in in person, and evidently Christ taught Paul, gave him message, gave him talking points. There was a time when Paul was in the wilderness, when he was also a time when, no doubt, he had a time where he encountered Christ. Somewhere along the line, our Lord taught and gave a word that this would happen. So it's reliable, it's based on the resurrection, it's based on the teaching of Christ. Our Lord did teach it in John 14, 3. I will go again and I will go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. But I have to tell you, letter C, I, this is an important point and I'm all in on it. This is incredible teaching. This is, uh, you know, it's a little bit almost like bizarro, isn't it? It's like, woo. what are we talking about here? This is incredible teaching. Let's just break it down, let's see what happens. Okay, so we're in verses 16 and 17. He says, For the Lord himself, this is what's going to happen. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. In my notes, I got it flipped. Number one under letter C, Christ will appear with a trumpet sound. He will appear when this trumpet sounds. Okay, there's a lot of talk about what trumpet that is. I do not believe that it's representative of any of the trumpet judgments in the book of Revelation. With the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and then not only will this trumpet sound, but there will be a loud angelic shout. It's going to be a noisy event. Many Bible students speculate that only Christians will be able to hear it. We don't know. We don't know. It appears to be real. And then... This incredible shout, it's a calling forth of of the dead. It's partly what it is, I think. So after this loud, angelic shout, the next thing we see, when well, we're reflecting back, we know, in the order of things, that back in verse 14, at the end of verse 14... Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So number three, letter C, is that the souls of dead church saints will descend from heaven with Christ. So when there's this trumpet sound and this archangel shout, the souls of the dead Christians will be with Christ, and they will come out of the air with Christ. The the next thing we see... In verse 16, now back up to 16, the Lord himself then will descend with heaven from heaven with this cry of command, with the trumpet sound, then at the end of verse 16, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay, Thessalonian believers, you want to know what happens? What's going to happen is the dead bodies of your saints are going to come out of the ground. So the bodies of dead church saints will be raised first, he says. This is problematic. This is pro- I can think of all kinds of cases. I mean, what about this Christian guy who is sailing in the seas and the pirates find out that he's a Christian and they, they slash him and they throw him in the sea and immediately he's gobbled up by a shark and then... <laughs> Where is this guy? And it was 500 years ago. I mean you can think you can some guy that was blown up and disintegrated in an explosion what about his body I have no idea I just know that the molecules are somewhere and they are going to come back together I don't know there is a physical I believe it's a physical resurrection you can create all kinds of of scenario issues that are problematic in the in the physics lab our lord trumps all of the physics of the universe And when the trumpet sounds and the archangel shouts, the molecules will regather themselves. And the bodies of dead church saints will be raised first. Then notice, number five, living church saints will be caught up together with resurrected bodies of the dead church saints to meet Christ in the air. This is verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It couldn't be clearer. These are church people who have not died. They've never had a funeral for them. They're living and Christ comes in the air. And the first thing that's going to happen after the loud shout and the trumpet is the dead saints' bodies are going to, molecules are going to regather somehow and they're going to be shooting up through the air and they're going to be joined with the souls of those dead bodies. And in a moment we'll comment on that more. And then the next thing that's going to happen, we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet them together. In the air. The next time I will see Kay Marceau, my mother, and Eugene, my father, is evidently in the air. If I'm here at the time of the rapture. Right? So saints go up, were regathered, and there's somehow this happens in the air, it says. And there will be, number six, an instantaneous transformation. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15 now, and let's just read that text quickly as we conclude we'll wrap this up shortly. First Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and in part of that is the resurrection of the body even at this time when we will be reunited with the Lord as his church. Let's begin with verse 50 in 1 Corinthians 15:50. Notice what he says. Let's just read this text. The apostle Paul writing the Corinthian believers says, "I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God." Okay, so let's just stop there. Part of the reason all this is happening is because you can't get to heaven in the body you got. The body you have isn't fit for heaven. You can't go to heaven in this body. If you were here on family night, I was trying to illustrate this with corn seed and a corn stalk. Because the Apostle Paul earlier in the chapters talked about how grain in the seed form goes into the ground, dies, but then it sprouts up. And I was holding up like a nine-foot corn stalk and holding a handful of corn seed and noticed there's no, there's no comparison. What went into the ground and rotted and died is now transformed into something that is absolutely different than what it went in the ground. That is the illustration the Apostle Paul is using and that's what he's saying here. He's saying, I'm telling you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does that which is perishable, that which went into the ground and rotted or was across the bottom of the ocean, perishable, that does not inherit the imperishable, heaven. Behold, I tell you a mystery. When the Apostle Paul uses the word mystery, he's talking about revealing something that heretofore or up until now has not been revealed. It's new information. And this entire church age that we have on our chart, that was a mystery to the Old Testament saints. They didn't even see it coming. It was clouded. They didn't get it. They didn't see it until it happened. And Paul says, I'm telling you a mystery, something heretofore that was not revealed earlier. We shall not all sleep. There's that wonderful word, that euphemism for death of a saint. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We have to be changed because flesh and blood cannot inherit heaven. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, it's not yet, but it will be then. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. That's a, a passage of hope and comfort. Notice what it says, number six. There will be this, this, is what Paul's talking about, there will be this instantaneous transformation. So back in 1 Thessalonians 4... I take what is happening here is that as the trumpet sounds and the archangel shouts and the souls of the, the, the believers who've gone on to be with the Lord already are coming back with him, their bodies come up and they're instant, in an instant. It says the idea of twinkling of an eye is the idea of a glance, a glance up at the clock, as quick as you can, as you glance over that fast, boop, boop. Or the idea of a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment. The idea in the Greek word, behind the word translated moment in English, is the idea that it is a unit of time that cannot be divided down anymore. It's just the smallest unit of time. And so there will be this instant transformation. And I take it that what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, on the transformation of that which is... That which is a, a condemned body. That which is, um, uh, what's the word that he uses? I'm blanking out right now. But the idea is of a, um, what, what kind of body does he call that? Help me out. I'm blanking out, third service people. A perishable body. A perishable body. A mortal body. All right? That, that cannot go to heaven is immediately made imperishable. All right? is immediately transformed. In the moment, in the breaking. So the dead body then is fit for heaven. That which had rotted in the ground and decayed in the ground immediately becomes an imperishable body that is suitable for all of eternity. And we who are alive and remain are caught up together in the Lord, in the air to meet the Lord in the air. Immediately our body is given to us, our perishable flesh and blood body, that you need no evidence other than you already know all the evidence you have that your body is perishing. And immediately it's transformed into your heavenly body so that it, that it will be only in the moment of a glance or time that cannot be divided, we will receive this instantaneous transformation. Let's quickly observe in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4 that this is an observable event. In other words, it's, this is a physical reality. I don't think that we're talking about a spiritual reality here as much as we're talking about a physical reality. It's observable. Notice the physical description. We will meet with them in the clouds. That reminds us of Acts chapter 1, where uh, the angels told the disciples that our Lord would return in the clouds. That's a physical description. Clouds are a physical property. We're talking about the physical world here. We're not talking about the metaphysical. We're talking about the physical. We're also talking, number two, about a physical resurrection. We're talking about real bodies coming out of the ground. I believe that's true. It is a physical body because it is based upon the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you run into all kinds of problems if you don't believe Jesus rose bodily from the dead. He rose bodily from the dead. They could touch it. They could see the marks. They could see his side. They could see his hands. It was a physical body that was transformed. And so we're talking about what is observable here and physical Letter E, it is irreversible, Lotus 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's a wonderful truth, isn't it? It's irreversible. From that moment on, church, we will be with the Lord, never to be separated again, I take it. This is why we use this passage at funerals. We don't have to grieve as those who have no And I often go to Psalm twenty three and connect that with John fourteen one through three. Said, um, and I will come again in John fourteen, Jesus said, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We will be with Christ. Psalm twenty three, he was looking forward to it. What is it? How does Psalm twenty three end? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. We'll be with the Lord. What a wonderful truth this is. It's irreversible. From this moment on, all church-age believers will be with Christ forever. Letter F, we've already talked about a little bit. We will be imperishable. This perishable body will become imperishable. And that all happens in a moment in the twinkling of of an eye at the sound of the trumpet. So let's compare the rapture and the second coming of Christ. Let's just kind of put them side by side. Clearly, Paul is teaching in 1 Thessalonians 4 that Christ returns in the air for his church. If you would read Zechariah 14, you would see that Christ is going to return to the earth and his feet are going to split Mount of Olives. There's going to be some kind of earthquake and his feet hit the Mount of Olives and just going to split it right in half. I have no reason to believe that's not a physical, geographical event. It's a geophysical event. It's just going to happen. So this, what we're talking about, is something that happens in the air, directed towards the church. His other return, his feet are splitting the Mount of Olives. He's coming to earth. Secondly, Christ returns for his saints. He returns for his saints, those who are in Christ. In the second coming of Christ, we recognize in Revelation 19 that the armies of heaven are with him. This is evidently the saints who come with Christ. They will come with him. So he's not coming for his saints at the second coming. He's coming with his saints. I think this is a big argument here, number three, and that is that the rapture message is always given as a message of comfort. It's a message of comfort. And never in the second coming apocalyptic passages is comfort given. It is always warning. Christ returns in judgment, not for comfort. The, return is, the emphasis of Christ's return, number three, is that Christ returns in judgment of a rebellious world. There's no comfort, it's rather a horrible time and it's always given as a warning. Finally, number four, the New Testament views the rapture as an imminent event. I've already talked about that. It could happen at any time. Number four in the second coming column, it's indicated, the second coming is indicated by many specific signs that Jesus said, watch for these signs. This is gonna happen and this is gonna happen and this is gonna happen and then I'm coming. It's never like that with the rapture, with the return of church, with the, with the doctrine of eminency threaded throughout the epistles. It's always this sense of he could come at any time. Take away the rapture, I think you take away eminency. So the question is, are you rapture ready? Are you born again? I mean, I really don't know. Ex- I, I won't get my head cut off for when this is going to happen other than I think it could happen at any time. But one thing I will get my head cut off for is that what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, that the dead in Christ will rise first, that Christ will come in the air, there'll be a trumpet, a shout, dead in Christ will rise, we who are alive and remain will be caught up here. I think it's going to happen exactly like that. I think what he's saying is exactly what he means. And he intends for us to understand that. And there we will meet Christ in the air. Are you ready to be, meet Christ? Are you ready to meet your bridegroom? Bride. You do that by accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior, knowing that your sin is forgiven, your rapture ready. I believe that God is going to have mercy on his church and keep us out of the tribulation period. That is a time where he's dealing with Israel and the world at large, not specifically with his church. It doesn't mean that we won't suffer for our faith, that we might not have horrible times. But I don't believe we're going to live in that 70th week of Daniel, those who know Christ we will be raptured and taken away. What a marvelous event, given for our comfort, not to confuse, to give us hope. Will you stand, please? Father, we turn to you this morning. You know our hearts. You know our minds. Could be there are some who have been sitting, listening, and been making a mockery of your word today because it it seems so sci-fi, Father, would you convict our hearts to live rapture ready? If there's anybody here who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, would you just draw them unto yourself? Help them to admit their sinfulness right now. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me, let me interrupt my prayer. Would you just admit your sinfulness? In the quietness of your own heart and mind, God sees every thought. Say, Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I've offended you, I've offended Christ, I've I've disobeyed the word of God. I admit my sinfulness and I believe that Jesus died for my sin. And I accept his righteousness for the forgiveness of my sin. Tell God something like that, that you're sorry for your sin, you believe in Christ. You want to become a new creation in Christ. Be transformed, be rapture ready. The greatest thing you can do for your family is to have a testimony of faith and trust in Jesus Christ so that if we have your your funeral, we can just know you're asleep and the hope of seeing you again is real. And so, Father, stir our hearts and challenge our minds and help us to live and walk worthy of the cause of Christ. Help us not to be embarrassed of our Bibles. Help us not to be ashamed of Christ in any way or form. And these teachings came straight from Christ and we believe them to be true. And we will live accordingly. In Jesus' name we ask for your blessing as we go. Amen. 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 Amen.